Hey everybody, this is Kim, your friendly neighborhood ER travel nurse of a host, checking in, dropping by, and, well, not really owning up to what I said I would do last time. I promised you guys a brand new part two episode regarding ear things, uh, earwax, all that good stuff, and trust me, that is still in development, but between then and now, guess what happened? Life. Life happened. And as such, I did not deliver on what I thought I would be doing by now, but it's not a problem. In fact, it kind of opened up an opportunity to highlight something else. You see, on the day that this is released, April 19th, that marks the 26th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. And as such, the Oklahoma City bombing happened to be the focal point for my very first episode of this podcast. And so I decided to do a re-release of it with a bit of an update regarding something I mentioned at the very end of that episode. Now, please be a little bit gentle on me because this was the very first episode I ever did of this podcast. I did not apparently know what the word edit meant and I have left it in its original form as well as I think that there's even different intro music if I'm remembering correctly. So that's a whole new experience for some of you. But in addition to that, I kind of wanted to just highlight real quick that this story is not about the man that created such chaos and tragedy. It is a story about everybody's lives who intertwined on that day. This just highlights a few of those people. And with respect to more of that medical side, this was the first sort of intro I had growing up with a mass casualty incident, domestic terrorism, and the perseverance and resiliency that comes with being human and encountering times of great difficulty and strife. So maybe now more than ever, this is a story that we can sort of connect to in a different way than when I first started this podcast. So I just wanted to take the time to say that and I hope that also you choose what's best for you in terms of listener discretion. This does have Uh, Like I said, some incidences regarding bombings and very traumatic and very gory details regarding injuries sustained. So if that is something that you cannot really, uh, let me just say this, if you're not really into that whole sort of scene, I believe I have a little bit of a disclaimer um, when I do actually mention it. I was pretty good about doing that in the early episode, so I I kind of went in there with that mindset, and that is still in the episode. Now, I did want to amend something. There is a mention about a documentary being produced called Beauty for Ashes, and I recently looked that up in re-releasing this, and it actually is still in development. So I have the link to their Instagram in the show notes. So please check it out, support them however you can, because this story that you're about to hear is incredible and I hope it resonates with you guys and I hope that everyone is staying safe and just doing their part to look out for each other and to of course believe in the good.
Hello and welcome to the new year and an episode one of People Are Wild. I am so honored and grateful that you probably accidentally downloaded this while searching for, well, who knows what. But the point is, you're here, I'm here, and it's a new year. See what I did there? A little bit of rhyming? That's the high quality humor you're going to find from this podcast. It sets us apart. But what is this podcast about specifically, you ask? I'm not quite sure. This is episode one. I'm not a psychic. I'm not Miss Cleo. But my goal is to have some levity and humor while speaking about medical topics. If I do this right, maybe it's scrubs in podcast form on a good day. Maybe. Now for introductions. My name is Kim. And I'm a nurse who's worked in ICU, ER, trauma for years, and we'll leave it at years, as well as having a background in wilderness medicine. And I've seen some things in my time, and I've been absolutely flabbergasted by the people who land themselves in the emergency department at 2 a.m., half naked, instead of landing in a Waffle House parking lot at 2 a.m., half naked. But that's neither here nor there. I digress. This is a show that will cover a whole spectrum of medical issues, and much like the House of Pain classic, it will jump around in subject matter, as well as guests and co-hosts. So if you're already sick of my voice, think of how I feel. I've lived with this. And also, too bad, because this is a solo episode, and it's just me and you. Now, let me apologize in advance for all audio issues. I'm slowly trying to figure this out. It's episode one, for goodness sake. Cut me a break. Also, you may or may not hear what I'm hoping are fireworks in the background because I'm recording this on New Year's Eve night. I'm going to go with that they're fireworks. I really hope that they're fireworks. I don't want to work tonight. I do need to warn you that the subject matter and material discussed in this episode might not be for those that are squeamish. And I'll give you a heads up before it gets too detailed so you can skip ahead if needed. Now, I'm in my best Snuggie right now. My Mariah Carey prayer candle has been lit. I've listened to James Blunt's You're Beautiful for the past hour on a repeat loop. So I'm ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild. The date was April 19th, 1995. TLC's Waterfalls was number one on the Billboard charts and number one in my heart. Rest in peace, Lisa Left Eye Lopes. We miss you. The place was the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Which, quick question, Oklahoma, why do you have so many toll booths? And why are they unmanned and still asking for exact change? I drove through your state last year, and I had to almost get into a five-car accident trying to find two dimes to make change. It was an ordeal. But I digress. Again. Moving on. Shortly before 9 a.m., a rider truck parked outside of the multi-story federal building. A tall, lanky young man walked away from the truck, not a care in the world, after he just lit a fuse in the cargo area that was rapidly making its way to a homemade bomb that detonated shortly after 9 a.m. The result would be that Timothy McVeigh had just committed an act of terrorism in Oklahoma City. Now let me give you a heads up. This is not going to be about Timothy McVeigh or the attack itself. So if you want to know more about the actual bombing, 
This is not the right place for that. Sorry, you could try Sears. Instead, I chose to talk about a survivor of the blast who was the last victim to be pulled out of the rubble on that life-altering day that has an unbelievably true story of how she survived. Dana Bradley, then a 20-year-old mother of two, woke up that morning not knowing her life would change, that she was going to be involved in a terrorist attack. Instead, she was getting herself ready for the long day ahead of her, as she needed to wake her kids, three-year-old Peachlin and four-month-old Gabrion. They had things to do that day, and they needed to get an early start. Among those were to go to the Social Security office that was housed in the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building on the first floor. Dana needed to get a social security card for Gabrion. Now, I've had to visit the social security office once, thank God, in my lifetime. And it was just me. And I felt my soul being sucked out. It's only a half a step, and that's generous above the DMV in terms of just how bad it is. And that, again, was just me. So if it was two young kids along there... Uh Uh-uh, you need to call in reinforcements. And so Dana actually brought her mother, Cheryl, who saved her a place in line as she filled out the paperwork. Also present was her sister, Felicia, who helped to keep the kids entertained while Dana and Cheryl got everything together. It was supposed to be an uneventful errand, and really it was. That is, until the clock hit 9.02. Dana described that when the explosion happened, she heard nothing, and all she could see was bright lights, and then she felt her body start to lift, and she began to frantically scream out for her mother to help her. The floor she had just been standing on was collapsing underneath her, and all at once, everything and nothing was happening. She was sliding into the basement to the sounds of her own children crying and screaming out for her, but that was soon replaced by the thunderous echoing as the nine stories of the Murrah Federal Building were crashing on top of her. She didn't know how long she was out before she came to, and she can recall hearing her sister next to her, calling out for help, while she herself lay trapped, her left arm pinned, and her right leg underneath slabs of concrete, and she was laying in a pool of cold water. But, she states, I never felt anything. No pain. I couldn't feel anything in general. Serdina's body is at this point in the early stages of shock. See, here comes the medical part, because I'm a nurse. So, there was a whole point to this, I promise. So, her body is in the early stages of shock, which, that actually helps the body to preserve itself, especially in a state of great distress. Which, by the way, why are ripped jeans now known as distressed jeans? It's like a super weird term. I'm not knocking it, I won't kick it out of bed for eating crackers. In fact, it's kind of like hashtag mood to me. But it's just weird that we're like, all right, cool, they're distressed now. Anyways, Dana is going into shock, which again, isn't necessarily a bad thing for your body to go through initially. It helps you to survive. There are so many immediate responses and changes going on within your body that that would be a whole nother episode in and of itself. Ooh, maybe that would be a good episode to do in and of itself. Huh, writing that down. For the sake of exposition, though, for this, 
Shock means that the body is detouring blood to keep oxygenation going and blood flowing to important organs like the heart, lungs, brain, kidneys, and liver. You know, the ones that you can't really live without. I think Deadpool taught us that. But the body can only keep this going for so long before it gets tired. And much like a college kid pulling an all-nighter after drinking two monsters and six Red Bulls, at some point, it's going to crash. Now, if that isn't enough, Dana was also in the midst of having sustained a crush injury to her right lower leg. And what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. If you ever caught feels for a guy and he invites you to play a game of basketball, this happens to everyone, I'm assuming, and you haven't done that in over 10 years because you're not a teenager anymore, newsflash, but you like this guy and you go for it, but you end up tearing your ACL because you landed wrong while getting a rebound, it's not a crush injury, but you did end up injuring yourself in front of your crush. But say you caught feels for a guy, and suddenly you haven't heard from him for about 127 hours. And then you find out he was airlifted because he had to cut off his own arm in the middle of the desert because he was pinned between, quite literally, a rock and a hard place. That is probably a crush injury. To define it, a crush injury occurs when force or compression is placed on extremities or other parts of the body that causes muscle swelling and or neurological disturbances in the affected areas of the body. Google Translate that. Crushing force is applied to an area of the body and is not letting up anytime soon and bad things are happening in the body. So there you go. Early aggressive treatment of patients suspected of having a crush injury is crucial. Time is tissue. Along with the severity of the damage to the actual tissues and fractures that might be occurring on the bones, a major concern of severe crush injury is the duration of the actual entrapment. So the longer you're stuck there, the longer that arm or that limb or whatever is immobilized under all that pressure, it can actually cause a dangerous syndrome that can be life-threatening to develop crush syndrome. So, for example, let's say we have Jill, who's doing an oil change this afternoon because she's an independent woman who doesn't need a man to do car maintenance. Her vehicle's on a jack, and as she watches the oil drain into a pan, she realizes, I left a tool underneath my car, and she reaches for it. But at that exact same moment, the jack fails, and slams the car back down to the ground, trapping Jill's arm underneath. Luckily, her roommates had been home. They actually saw it happen. They rush out to lift the car off of her. It only takes a few minutes to free Jill. She ends up being rushed to the ER for further assessment. Jill suffered a crush injury, meaning that she has some smashed up bones, torn ligaments, wicked bad swelling, and hopefully not the beginnings of a new painkiller addiction. But she lives to see another day. Now, if those roommates hadn't have been home, and Jill had to scream for help for hours before somebody heard her, by the time she was freed, she'd maybe end up with a crush syndrome from her crush injury. The more time the body region remains trapped, especially if it's over four to six hours, 
the more likely that the patient can be susceptible to this syndrome. But it can also occur in less than an hour depending on the amount of force placed on the body area or extremity. And I would say that Dana being under nine floors worth of concrete when she was discovered by rescue crews about two hours after the bombing, she was more than likely developing crush syndrome rapidly on top of shock, on top of possible hypothermia. Isn't that good? She needed to be rescued immediately and freed even faster. But her right leg, it was trapped. And this is what was probably going on on the inside of that leg. Cells were quickly dying due to the initial injury of being crushed under all that weight. And anything that was still working was struggling to do its job. The cells themselves were compressed, and they're not able to move. So, at some point, they'll start to die. And some of them will start to leak out their contents as they die. Now, if you actually remember high school bio, God bless you. But your cells are comprised of a lot of different things. And yes, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. But it has things like potassium and myoglobin and all these terms that you can look up, knock yourself out. But if they leak enough into an area, they actually cause the blood to have toxins in it. They're just dumping more and more of these toxins into the surrounding cells and into more and more of that injury. So it's actually localized to that crush injury. And if you know anything about maybe, well, anything, I guess, about crush injuries, they always say that when you relieve the pressure, sometimes that's what kills people. And it's because of this phenomenon that goes on. If you localize all the bad stuff to one area and suddenly you take off that pressure, it's going to travel everywhere. All of a sudden, you're going to have toxins everywhere in that person's system. And if they've already sustained other injuries or there's already something else going on in their body, you might be looking at a patient that's not going to be doing too well really, really soon. Now, to get back to Dana's issue... Well, I guess, you know, she probably did have a little bit of some toxins going on. But like I said, she had hypothermia. She's in shock. Uh, and she has just a whole myriad of things going on in her body that are stressing it out. Detrimental effects of toxins in the bloodstream can't always be managed pretty damn well in the hospital. But Dana was not in a hospital. She was in the rubble of a concrete jungle. Lucky for her, part of the rescue team that found her included a physician or two. I think there was three, if I remember correctly, from the article. And one of them just so happened to be the chief of pediatric orthopedic surgery at the University of Oklahoma Hospital. And that's not by actually, like, you know, a miracle. Um, they actually gave them a heads up. Uh, and we'll go into that in just a second. So don't think it's like, oh my gosh, that's this divine intervention. No, not quite. But there's still some cool parts to this story where you're going to be like, what? Um, but 
on that note, let's talk about what I'm about to get into. Um, I'm going to refer to graphic subject matter, as in like gory details, as going into like the cut. Um, because technically, I would think that if you don't want to hear it, you can essentially cut this part out. See what I did there? High quality humor. And you could go directly to the end. Because here's your spoiler alert. Dana Bradley had to have her right leg amputated in the middle of the rubble in order to free her. And what I'm about to go into is how that happened. So if you don't want to listen to that, you can go towards the end and catch up with me where I tell you how Dana was doing post-amputation and post-rescue. And we'll go from there. It's all good. But if you want to continue listening... I will try not to be unnecessarily graphic with the amputation, but dude, it's an amputation in a thing of rubble. Like, it's not going to be pretty, but we'll try and keep things somewhat civil. So if you're ready, let's get into the cut. Dr. Andy Sullivan. He is a shorter duck in the land of orthopedic surgeons, as in stature-wise. All right. On April 19th, 1995, for once, his lack of height would become beneficial. He was starting his day as the chief of pediatric orthopedic surgery at the University of Oklahoma Hospital when the bomb went off. Within minutes, the hospital rallied its resources and prepared itself for the unknown number of victims that would begin to come to their facility. And that's actually something that happens a lot that you train for. Uh, you do something called mass casualty incidents and emergency preparedness sort of drills and scenarios where your hospital teaches you how to do management of multiple patients um, and where your resources are. And you do them all as mock-ups. And then you hope that you don't need to use them. But in this case, obviously, they did. Uh, one of the stronger examples would be the Las Vegas incident, the Las Vegas tragedy that happened not too long ago. There is so much um, literature about how well prepared their hospital was. Uh, it's a cool read. I can get you links if you're really interested in it. But hospitals, bottom line, we train for bad things, especially in the ER you're the ones that are going to see these people first and foremost. There's a term called walking wounded. And that's usually when people are able to essentially walk themselves into a hospital. But they're also have been injured <clears throat> by the incident or attack or event or whatever happened. So walking wounded uh, can make up a majority of your patients because a lot of the ones that are really bad will either be flown out or transported out to the proper facility with those resources. And if you're a smaller hospital who can't handle that, you get a lot of walking wounded. And uh, that's something that can overwhelm the resources of smaller hospitals. But in doing this, this research for this, um, 
there were a lot of good articles about how they were all ready. And actually, if you read about the Boston bombing, that one is one of the ones that is also really inspiring in terms of how many people um, went and just helped out people. And of course, there's, I believe, that image uh, that people know where that man was in the wheelchair and they were literally holding his artery to save his blood flow. Like, that's pretty intense. Um, especially after having ran a marathon. But that's just the nature of what you do for your fellow man. So, getting back on topic. Um, we have Dr. Andy Sullivan. He is the chief of pediatric orthopedic surgery. And his hospital is trying to figure out logistics and preparing themselves for the unknown number of victims they would begin to receive as a result of the bombing. With hospital resources already devoted to stabilizing as many victims in the hospital as possible, they were actually able to have uh, physicians and surgeons be transported to the actual bombing site, to the federal building and help rescue crews and paramedics and EMS on scene with medical treatment right there. And they had actually discovered Dana, and they called over to the university hospital, and they asked if they would be able to have, essentially, Dr. Sullivan come down there. And he was able to, obviously, after they had stabilized, or not stabilized, but after they had delegated their proper resources to the hospital management of the victims, uh, Dr. Sullivan was able to go. And before he left, he grabbed his materials because he did hear that this female was trapped under this rubble and needed to be freed and probably would need an amputation. Um, so he grabbed his kit. There's an amputation kit that apparently uh, he was able to grab. And then he grabbed some additional surgical items and a, um, I think in the article, I want to say that the rope was in the kit, but he might have grabbed the nylon rope as well. So he made his way down there with rescue crews to where Dana was trapped. And they had told him about the situation, but this was the first time he was able to lay eyes on the actual situation. And he um, was stopped initially everybody was, and they were ordered to put on hard hats. And so Dr. Sullivan and the others are slowly making their way down to where she was trapped. And he said he recalls looking around and seeing a man leaning up against a pillar. And he found it odd that this rescue worker just seemed to be just like chilling there, holding up a pillar with one hand and just standing there. So he asked him like, hey, man, are you, are you just chilling here? Are you just taking a break, taking your 15 minutes? And the guy said, well, no, um, I'm keeping my hand on this pillar and feeling for vibrations because if it starts to move, everyone needs to GTFO. And so Dr. Sullivan was like, fair enough. Please continue doing what you're doing. Thank you. Um, so it was kind of like a good indication or of what the mental, you know, what, what their mentality was for that day was that. You know, people were trying to keep buildings stable, which is crazy to think that, oh, you're going to be doing an amputation in an unstable building that might fall at any time. But if that guy feels vibrations, you guys need to go. And 
it's it's got to be a tough spot to be in. Um, like number one, you arrive on scene, you see this chaos all around you. There are s- people everywhere. There is smoke and fumes coming up. There's screaming. There's crying. And now you're being guided down to this basement wearing a hard hat, carrying your instruments, and thinking to yourself, well, if that guy tells me to evacuate and I'm stuck somewhere, I'm screwed. What the hell is a hard hat going to do in a situation of a building being unstable and coming down on me? Um, But they soldiers on, you know, they're part of the rescue crew. They are part of the emergency crew. And that's kind of one of the things that you assume when you are in a role as a healthcare provider, especially in an emergency sort of setting, you just kind of can't turn it off. And once people around you know what you can do in terms of your specialty or your training, they expect things from you. And I think that that's totally plausible, mostly because, at least from a nurse, we are one of the most trusted professions and people see us as caregivers because that's what we are. So you do your job. You, excuse me, you go down there and you do what you have to do. And so that's what Dr. Sullivan and the team were going to do. Um, so Dr. Sullivan had to actually like army crawl into Dana's position. And it says on there, and he says, I believe in his interview, that he practically positioned himself like right over her body in order to have enough room to even look at what he needed to do. And then he quickly realized that the only way to get Dana out was to amputate that right leg. Uh, And so he was thinking, well, we've got to make her comfortable, as comfortable as we can. One of the other physicians had it grabbed, uh, I believe, some morphine and... um, they were going to start an IV on her so that they can get her some fluids. She um, needed pain control, obviously, if we're going to be doing an amputation out here. But here is our old friend, Shock, coming into play again. So she has been detouring this blood flow for quite some time to her major organs to keep them alive. And they found that because her blood flow was coming back to her core organs, it caused a lot of constriction and she was clamped down in her arms um, in terms of her veins. So the best way I can explain that is that if anyone has ever had to have their blood drawn and they've been dehydrated before the blood draw, you realize that they have a hell of a time finding your vein and your veins are kind of flat and it's hard to hit. So if you're blood is detouring blood from your limbs, your body, not your blood detouring blood, that doesn't make sense. But if your body is detouring blood from your limbs to your, to your heart and your lungs, you will end up with veins in your extremities, in your arms, essentially the only thing they can work with being flat and making it practically impossible to establish an IV in a timely manner. And they didn't know necessarily what else was going on with her. So there are a few devices you can use in the field that can provide rapid access, but it is contraindicated if you suspect um, fractures. There's something called an intraosseous device, which is when they actually drill into your bone to get access. 
Um, but given the fact that you have the potential of a ginormous injuries going on with anybody, that was probably X'd out. They couldn't necessarily use the good old IO drill, but it is so much fun to put in people. Sorry, I really shouldn't say that. That makes me sound really cold and callous. I swear I'm not. I just, oh, maybe I am. So, um, Dr. Sullivan was able to actually give Dana a medicine called Versed. Some people might be familiar with it, but if you're not, it has a, no, it has a lot of different uses. Um, but in this case, it was used more as an amnesiac so that she wouldn't necessarily remember what was about to happen. Um, sometimes they will give Versed for people before they have colonoscopies. So you're not completely out, but you don't remember the event. Um, so while they did this, Dr. Sullivan was looking at everything and he was able to actually use that nylon rope, tie it around Dana's leg and make a tourniquet because without it, she would no doubt bleed out once he had started the procedure, especially if he hit something like an artery or just something that was going to bleed for a while. If he didn't have a tourniquet, she had a potential of having an uncontrolled bleed that could lead to her death. Now, let's also mention that the longer a victim is trapped, again, the more toxins build up distally to that crush injury. So the longer you are kept underneath and trapped, the more bad stuff is getting into your bloodstream. And again, if you take that force off, if you take that compression off, all of a sudden, it's like a dam just broke and the toxins are going to just hit that bloodstream, go into the rest of the body and cause a lot of bad juju. So in the field, tourniquets are encouraged when IV access is not readily established in order to save the patient uh, by stopping a release of toxins and also sort of that blood flow from that crush injury to, you know, circulate into the body, if it makes sense. I'm not quite sure if this makes sense. Sometimes I record this late at night and um, it could just be me rambling and I feel like it is because I'm just talking to myself, but whatever. If it doesn't make sense, let me know hit me up and I will make it make sense to you. Don't even worry about it. Consider it done. Now back in the rubble, Dr. Sullivan had tied the makeshift tourniquet of that nylon rope, but then it was announced that another bomb had been found and everyone needed to evacuate immediately. And Dana pleaded with this rescue crew to not leave her. She cried out, I don't want to die. Don't leave me here. And for the longest 45 minutes, for their safety, the crew waited at a safe place until it was declared that they could go in and resume rescue operations. And in that time, Dana had initially expressed to the crew that she was hesitant about that amputation, which I completely understand. You're 20 years old. You're a mom of two. You have like all this stuff processing in your brain and now they're like we got to cut your leg off that's a lot to take in that is, is so much to process but in that 45 minutes or so that they were waiting to be declared safe um she realized that there was no way that she would be able to have a chance of survival if they didn't do the amputation 
And it said in one of the articles that they had to leave her and she realized there's no way I physically can get out of here, which means that I have no chance unless I at least let them do this. So when they came back, she told them, do whatever you have to do. And so they did. A firefighter cut through a reinforcement bar to allow a bit more space for Dr. Sullivan to maneuver into the position of where Dana was. And it was at that moment that the right-handed surgeon realized that if he was going to do this procedure, it was going to have to be with his left hand. He also realized that in order to do right by Dana and work quickly to free her, he didn't have enough space to operate the bone saw. And so plan A was chucked. Time to move on to plan B. And he did when he placed his right hand on her right knee and he felt for a space where he could avoid cutting into the bone. After all, he didn't have his bone saw anymore. So he decided he was going to do what is called a through the knee amputation. And that would be through the vessels and the soft tissue, but avoiding the bone the whole time. There are risks with that, of course. There's risks with everything that was going on that day. But if he hit an artery, she could bleed out. And if he just didn't do things right, she could go into shock and die. So, with the help of the rescue crew, they placed a harness on Dana in preparation to move her out once the procedure was completed and she would be free. They were going to get her immediately out of there in the safest way possible to be stabilized. At this point, the Versed had kicked in, and Dana was a little bit more comfortable in terms of probably not her pain, but more about what was going on around her. Dr. Sullivan told Dana that what he would have to do, or I'm sorry, he told her what he would do, and that it was the only way for her to make it out alive. And she told them, go ahead. And so Dr. Sullivan said that before he began, he remembers saying a prayer. And his first thing he asked for in his prayer was that Dana survive and not die as a result of his treatment. And the second thing he said in his prayer was that his family would remember him well if he died. So this guy, Dr. Sullivan, is just so rad. And I feel like if you're not getting, like, the feels, if you're not getting a little emotional or the chills, there's something very wrong with you because he put Dana in front of his family in a way, and his mind was on Dana's survival. No matter what, I want her to survive. And I just think that that's just, that is a true hallmark of a doctor that is just do no harm and thinks of their patients, and there's a reason why he was the chief of uh, pediatric orthopedic surgery. So you might be asking yourself, Dana got pain medicine, right? You haven't mentioned anything about pain medicine. You might have talked a little bit before about morphine, but you didn't say if she got it. Well, here's the thing. They had morphine with them, but when the medical team on site took her vitals, they became concerned that her blood pressure was too low and that if they gave her morphine, 
it could potentially bottom out her pressure and stop her heart. And that's not good. So they thought, well, if we, even if we gave her pain medicine and her blood pressure dips low, we could do CPR, but not in this space. They could barely have their doctor fit in there. So it was with this medical background and knowledge that they came to the conclusion and decision that Dana was not stable enough to get pain medicine that they had on site. And there wasn't enough time to have somebody else come in with an alternative. They would have to be doing this amputation with no pain medicine on board. So I totally understand if you've put a hole through your floor from all the pacing you're doing right now, because I had to walk away from my notes and all the articles I was reading while I was researching this because I started getting like a little bit anxious, even though I know that she's going to survive. And even though I know that she has a good outcome, I was still like, oh my gosh, this is so insane. But it keeps going. So Dr. Sullivan had brought scalpels and blades and an amputation kit, which apparently includes a specialized uh, knife that you use for ampu- amputation, which is apparently probably different from the bone saw. Um, and so after his praying and no doubt mentally preparing himself and probably like psyching himself up somehow, he began with the first cut, the first slice. And he described that that first pass was the toughest. As Dana began to thrash about kicking her left leg, and Dr. Sullivan had to hold her left leg down and sort of pin it down next to him with his left hand while using his right hand to continue on with the procedure. And he kept going, and at one point he thought, oh, shit, I hit an artery. Because suddenly while he was cutting through, he had a gusher of blood, and it wasn't stopping. And so he had this moment of panic where he said to himself, oh my God, this girl's going to bleed to death right in front of me if I don't do something. But in those seconds that probably seemed like hours, the bleeding slowed down and eventually stopped. And he knew that it was a vein that he had hit. And so the procedure continued. Dana was doing her best to tolerate it and would ask occasionally for sips of water before she would lay there, responding to the questions that the medical crew was asking her as best as she could, an indication to them that she was still conscious, she was still with them. Twice, Dr. Sullivan thought the procedure was done, and twice he was mistaken. Cruz would attempt to extricate her, and she would scream, and at first I was like, well, how does that even happen? But then again, I had to think to myself, they're in rubble in the basement, and it probably has little to no light outside of uh, what I'm assuming are the headlamps from their equipment. So Dr. Sullivan was probably going purely based on feel at some point in terms of being done with the amputation. And you just have to think about that because, okay, maybe that's why they tried to pull her out twice is because he thought he was through everything. So the thing is, she still has her leg attached to her. And now there's a new problem. Dr. Sullivan has gone through all of his scalpels, all of his blades, as they kept breaking, and he dulled the amputation knife past a point of being useful. 
but Dana's right leg was still not free. So Dr. Sullivan remembered that he had a pocket knife in his back pocket. And I'm talking like, you can see a picture of it. It is a pocket knife. Like, this is the one that, you know, your buddy carries on them and you guys just happen to be going camping or something and you just need to cut something. It's not like a hunting knife. It is not a machete. It is a little, almost lipstick-sized knife. And he remembered that he had it in his back pocket I would think it was no doubt something he just carried with him every day as if it was like chapstick or his keys. Not giving it much mind until then when he grabbed it out of his pants and he completed the amputation. And you would think that this took a while, but actually this took approximately 10 minutes from start to finish. So you can imagine why all of his blades and the knife were dull is because Dr. Sullivan was working like a mofo to get this done. He was exhausted. Dana was free. They actually rode in the ambulance on the way to the hospital together because Dr. Sullivan needed to take her into surgery anyways. And she ended up making it through. Okay, now you can exhale the breath you might have been holding. So when Dana woke up in the days following April 19th, she faced the new and sudden reality of the deaths of her mom and children. Her sister, Felicia, had been rescued and survived, although she sustained a traumatic brain injury, amongst other injuries, and she would need to relearn how to walk, talk, and eat again. Dana, herself, also had to relearn how to walk again, once she was actually outfitted with her first prosthetic leg, which actually she um, had a Mickey Mouse design on it. She was a big fan of Disney, it said in the article. And I'd like to think that her kids grew up kind of like learning about that or, you know, having it around them. And in a way, maybe that was her way of having her children with her in every new step that she took. I like to think it was a little symbolic and maybe it was or wasn't, but I like to think it was. In the years that followed, she testified at Timothy McVeigh's trial. She got married and divorced and she had another son. She didn't come back to Oklahoma City until 2015. In fact, she had been living in Indiana for a majority of those years. And on the 20th anniversary in 2015, she gave a lot of interviews stating that she wasn't emotionally ready to handle it until then. She went to the Memorial Museum and she visited around the city before returning back to Indiana with her partner, uh, her long-term partner, she said, who was a good man, and her son, Elise, who was just about to graduate high school in 2015. She beams about her son, but she also mentions that there's not a day that goes by that she misses her two children and her mother. But Dana Bradley also has a really cool um, advocacy that she does. She has become an advocate for post-traumatic stress syndrome. And she talks about how she has bad days and she has good days, and she has found healing and comfort in her family and in music. She actually plays several instruments, guitar, drums, and she said that on her bad days, she turns to her family, and sometimes she turns to her instruments. Huh? That's pretty cool. Um, she says that she wants to become um, a voice and sort of a beacon of 
strength and hope for people who are going through um, post-traumatic stress syndrome and let them know that they're not alone. And in fact, she said something that I think is very crucial to have in our brains as we go into this new year. And she says, quote, hope gives people strength to believe that they can do beyond what other people tell them they can do beyond what you thought that you could do. And I think it's so important to keep that in our minds going into 2018, not to lose hope, to believe in the good, and to really just push ourselves to be better people. So speaking of good, in doing research on this, I found out that there's going to be a motion picture where Dana's story will be profiled. And it's in development at this time. I went on the IMDb website and it's called Beauty for Ashes. It has a projected date of being released in 2018. There is apparently a website for it. And um, it won an award, a few awards actually, uh, in terms of the screenplay. So it's definitely maybe one to watch out for. Uh, if you want to get more information about it, there is a Facebook page. It's called, again, Beauty for Ashes. And they do have a website and uh, there is a trailer too that they did, a teaser trailer. So you might want to check that out if you want to know more about Dana Bradley. And then just real quick, um, another thing that you might want to view is Dr. Sullivan. And there's this fantastic PBS documentary called Oklahoma City. And it's right around the 27 minute mark that they do about a 10 minute ish interview with Dr. Sullivan describing what he had to do. And it has the pictures that they took of Dana trapped under the rubble. It's not too graphic, but definitely, you know, if you don't want to see the pictures, don't see the pictures. Um, but if you want to hear from Dr. Sullivan, maybe play it on a different like window or something and have something else in the, in the foreground, but it's really good. But during that same documentary, they play Timothy McVeigh's prison interview. And I know I said this was not going to be about Timothy McVeigh, but surprise, I'm a liar. I have a lot of exes who can tell you that. Anyways, he speaks about the death penalty being the ultimate freedom. And in my mind, I had like this intense flashback of Jodi Arias saying the same damn thing in her post-conviction interview. And so I wanted to share that with you guys in order to make all of you have nightmares tonight. Just kidding. So I know I spoke about a lot of sort of heavy, heavy subject matter, um, like Marty McFly talking to Doc Brown and Back to the Future level of heavy. So I wanted to end not just this episode, but every episode with a little segment I call You Got What Stuck Where? And it's a really simple sort of thing. Um, what I'm going to do is describe to you an actual image, be it an x-ray, a CT, or an MRI, of something that a person has actually gotten stuck in their body. So let me just tell you that as a nurse and working with a lot of different doctors and uh, providers, we get really excited when someone checks into the ER and their chief complaint is like personal or for an object in body. Oh, it's so great. Um, so... I'm going to give you guys four clues and then you can tweet to me at people are wild, all one word, uh, with your guess. And if you're the first person who is correct, or at least most correct, 
I will send you some stickers because I appreciate you listening and interacting with me. So for the first time ever, let's play You Got What Stuck Where? Okay, clue one. The person who it happened to is an elderly man. Clue number two. This happened outside in the middle of the day during the summer. Clue number three. He ended up having to go to surgery to have it removed. And finally, for our clue number four, sorry, clue number four, forgot how to speak. After removal, he ended up having mild blurred vision that has since resolved. And those are your four clues. Tweet me at People Are Wild. And if you get it right in terms of guessing what the actual item is and where it got stuck in the body, um, I'll post the actual radiology image. Like, I'll post the actual, like, CT or x-ray. And, you know, obviously send you some swag. So um, definitely do it. Have fun with it. Don't be too weird about it. Because you should save those guesses for a little bit later on down the road. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So in closing this out, I am super appreciative that you listened. You stuck it out through this first episode. Please regard this as like the first, you know, how with sitcoms, they have like the first few episodes before they really hit their stride. That's what I'm hoping you guys kind of give me a chance with. Let me iron out some stuff. Let me hit the groove, the stride, whatever you want to call it, the flow. Um, And let's have fun with this. I want this to be informative and entertaining and intriguing and a lot of things that end with ING, apparently. Um, But definitely feel free to reach out to me on Twitter regarding topics you'd like me to cover. I'm open to suggestions and... I am wishing you a happy 2008. May it be filled with health and tons of joy. Have a great week and I will see you on the flip flop.